Hello and welcome to Eternal Dribbles. I'm your host, Zach Clark, and with me as always, Phil Blackman. Phil, how's it going, man? Zach, we got another banger on the cast today. Phil Gallagher is with us to teach us about how he teaches and also about everything that I don't know in this game. Phil, welcome to the cast. Great to be here. A double dose of Phil, I think, is everything your viewers want and more. <laughs> yeah, man, it's great to have you on. It, long time coming. Uh, now uh, we have completed the Triforce that is the Eternal Glory podcast uh, with this episode, which is kind of great. We're, we're a good crew, and uh, I'm counting other Phil in that, too as he does all of our editing work and uh, our podcast wouldn't exist without him. The first thing we want to talk about is, you know, to anybody who's not aware who you are, what you do, and and, and sort of what your background is. You're the president of Thraben U. As far as my career goes, I've been teaching for about 11 years. I am a Latin teacher by trade, and that's kind of where my educational spin to my magic content comes from. I don't know, probably about 10 years ago at this point. I got tired of answering the same question again and again and again on online forums about death and taxes. So I made my own D&T website. And over time, that spiraled into a career as a content creator. And while I'm still largely a legacy guy, I'm not really a death and taxes guy anymore. I'm much more of a sort of variety streamer, variety YouTuber for Magic the Gathering now, playing good decks, questionable decks, unholy decks that never should have seen the light of day, um, a little bit of everything for the channel. I did not know about the Latin thing. It's the only language I took in high school. One of the only things that I can remember uh, fr- from Latin class applies here. I know I'm going to butcher it, so I'm just going to say it in English. Repetition is the mother of study. Uh, oh, my, my Latin teacher drilled that into me to learn Latin. I, I know that I would just ruin it. That and time flies. Tempest Fuji. Repetition is the mother is the mother of study. I think is uh, one of my all time favorite uh, sayings in Latin, and I I'll put it down below so people can can see that I I looked up the Latin for that. Um. Well, actually, you see, in <laughs> Latin, the G is actually hard, and uh, at least in classical Latin, in ecclesiastical Latin, you're allowed to pronounce it like a J. So it's actually Tempest Fugit, not Fugit. Fugit. That's, That's fair. The title of the episode, it has by been twenty seven years <laughs> since I took a Latin class. So. Oh, I'm just giving you some shit. People pronounce Latin wrong all the time. It's basically oh, yeah. all everyone does in media. Like, yeah. it's all good. Yeah, so let's talk about a little bit about your uh, your coaching uh, and, and coaching technique and the coaching, uh, you know, just, just the service you offer. Generally speaking, Magic players plateau. At some point in their competitive career, maybe even before it starts, they hit a point where they don't know what they don't know. And they need someone else to tap them on the shoulder and ask, hey, why didn't you play that card? Why did you play that card? Why did you keep that hand? Why is that card in your deck? What is your approach to this matchup? People just need someone to ask them the right question to spark that growth. That is the thing that I try to offer to people. I think when a lot of tournament grinders do coaching, they focus on this is the right answer. This is how you should play this matchup. This is what I have been doing. Whereas I rarely give my coaches, people that I'm tutoring, any real answers. I'm just always asking the questions. I am getting them to think. I am getting them to explain. And that often leads to some really big level ups. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Getting the breakthroughs through just basically questioning how you're playing. You know, you're talking about plateaus. My uh, magic career looks like the top of kid or play. I don't remember which one is the one with the haircut. Uh, it looks like the top of kid or play's haircut. Having that question and answer thing, the sort of uh, that rhetoric is is kind of important to 
leveling up your magic career. If you hand a man a sideboard guide, like you are, you're giving him the answer key. And I don't want to do that. I want to teach people the skills so that they can make their own sideboard guide. Over the years, that is one of the, the questions that I've been asked the most. Like, do you have a sideboard guide? Is this on Patreon? And and the answer to that has always been no. But will I sit there and write like a 2000 word theoretical article about how you are supposed to play the initiative? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing in coaching, I try not to claim that I have the right answer because sometimes you can do something it can work, but there's still a better way to approach something. There's still a better card out there that you haven't thought of yet. And I, I really try to stay open-minded. Sometimes like I'll in a friendly fashion, butt heads with the person that I'm tutoring and will disagree and we'll sit there for half an hour and like really work through the problem. And that, that's the sort of stuff that leads to, to growth. One thing I tell my Latin students is 10 years from now, you will not remember the Latin that I taught you. you. You just won't. But will you remember the skills that I built, the critical thinking, the memorization tricks, the critical reading skills. Yes. And that's honestly why I'm doing what I do. That's awesome. Yes. Building skill set coaching. I have a background in playwriting and theatrical direction. And the way that you approach your tutoring sessions is the way that I would approach working with actors in a rehearsal studio. At the end of the day, they're the ones that are on stage and have to make the decisions with the lines that they're doing in front of the audience. You can't make it for them. And so giving them the skill set to actually find the genesis of the idea themselves. For everybody listening, if that doesn't sell you on urban use coaching, that's the kind of teacher you want. Yeah, I took a basic act acting course in college. And for the first couple of days, I just did not understand why the professor was telling me to do things the way I did. And then I sat in the audience for a while, thought on it, and I'm like, oh, he's always yelling at us to turn our bodies in this direction because the audience can't see my hand motions if I'm facing that way. Like, that's that's some of the stuff that this blocking is about. I didn't understand, like, why are you telling us to rehearse so loudly? Like, why are you telling us to project to the back of the room? There's six of us in here. Similarly, if somebody like Phil is going to give, is going to coach you in a session, the kind of thing to expect is that, like, Phil is a master of the game. He's been doing it, played all these different variety of decks. And you can go in assuming that he has an awareness of what matters in the matchup and how to approach a matchup. That's similar to like if you were directing actors in a, in a show, you have to assume that the director understands the purpose of the play and what the play is trying to do. And then you as the actor just fulfill the role in the scenes to get to that success point. So the way that a coach does it in sports, the way a coach would do it in, in magic as well. And ideally, you have a sense of how the matchup is also supposed to go. So that way, when your coach is like, hey, I, reminder, here's the things that you need to be remembered about this matchup, then you'd be like, oh, right, I need to be able to do that on my own in practice under stakes and time pressure. I, I got an email from someone the other day saying, hey, Phil, I'm going to play Death Shadow at Eternal Weekend. Can you coach me? And I message them back and I'm like, I'm going to make sure you understand what I do. Do I have 10,000 hours in with Death Shadow? No, I don't. Can I tell you exactly how you are supposed to sideboard for every matchup from experience? No, I can't. Can I be your sounding board and can I help you think through it? And do I have the metagame knowledge necessary to help you make all of those decisions and help you learn? Yes, that's what I have. Because as my content has shifted, I'm not the guy grinding for my own tournament results anymore. That's that's just not my life now. I'm the guy making entertaining legacy videos and uh, who is registering for Eagles of the North for your entertainment, you sickos. 5-0'd with that too yeah, much, much that. to my chagrin because i've been dumping on that card for months and now i've got a 5-0 to my name that'll always be there okay caveat on that was the 5-0 in part due to how good that card was or was that card just happened to be there and was enjoying the ride did i cast it as the 3-3 flyer no did i cycle it put it under a currency converter and immediately convert it into a creature in a way that was very good yes converting your currency to currency converters that's the way it goes <laughs> i'll let you decide whether or not that counts because it's it's <laughs> 
it's still sus. Well, it just turns out that land cycling uh, that for for a basic type is very good. <laughs> and I think I think we all sort of underrated all the land cyclers in the beginning. And now, you know, that card could literally have no other text. And, and in your case, it didn't have any other text than, aside from land cycling. And it still, you know, still did the job. It, you probably pitched a solitude to it at some t- point as well, yeah, right? Solitude, Chrome Box, like yeah. it did relevant things. The relevant thing was just not cast a 3-3 bird. Although yeah. I did have the opportunity to, but I just still had gas, so I didn't need to. Let's quickly talk about the cyclers. True or false? They should have been cycling for the color that they are, not for our generic mana. The fact that you can tap a wasteland as mana fixing does kind of hurt me on the inside the number of times i've been like yeah i'm going to go and i'm going to strip you off all of your mana and then it's just like oh cycle lorian revealed damn (laughs) yeah the cycle is appropriately balanced for limited play and probably for something like standard play even but then when you look at like what those cards are doing to modern legacy and vintage it's effed up those cards one of the best cycles we've probably seen in i don't know since like the elemental cycle probably this is the best interaction in legacy since brainstorm fetchlands bit of a hot take but I think I think uh, if you look at like perfect examples, Death Shadow. We're now playing sixteen lands in our Death Shadow deck. That was a mandatory like Rug Delver style like eighteen land deck. And now that your your wastelands can get colored mana, you're like, eh, I can drop two lands and throw in two more cards. Those two cards might actually just be Lorien Revealed or uh, Troll of Khazad Doom. But it's wild that you you know dropping even lower under the mana curve with those cards. And that's something that Fetchlands and Brainstorm allowed you to do. Yeah, when I was looking at the the Lord of the Rings card. Like I had zeroed in on some cards that I thought were were legacy playable, but I I vastly underestimated how good that cycle was going to be. Like I looked at them and I'm like, yeah, those are going to see a little bit of legacy play. And then like, no, they are format. I'd say format defining. I'd say Troll of Khazad Doom is at the format defining stage with like the mono black decks, it in scam. It's a real part of legacy. I get that all parts of the buffalo are powerful here, but would you say that the mana fixing off of generic mana is more powerful than the fact that it increases color requisites for a lot of decks? So like Lorian Revealed upping the blue count, Troll of Casa Doom incidentally upping the black count for Grief and all the pitch spells. Do you think the, the additional color for Chrome Mox and other pitch spells is the bigger part of the card or do you actually think it's the generic mana cycling? I think it's the gene- generic mana cycling. Yeah. You know, everything matters here. It turns out that a one mana cantrip that always allows you to hit land drop two is just really good because a lot of times that's what a ponder or brainstorm is trying to accomplish yeah. anyway. Do you guys remember the card Abundant? I believe it's Abundant Harvest. It was the green sorcery yep. that you choose lander. Uh, oh man, did that card want to just be the cycling? It just, it really just wanted to be generous. End. Yeah, we we all got really high on that card for like a month, and <laughs> then it fell <laughs> off the face of the earth. I was like, whoa, man, maybe Rug Delver is back. Maybe it wants to play this card. <laughs> the answer yeah, is no. It, it was doing that in, in that similar space that you were talking about, Zach, where it was like, yeah, we can lower our land count because we have this thing that's always a land. So it's the same way. It's tapped, but like you get your land. You don't know what it's going to be, but you know, you would, you knew you were going to get one. If only it was, you know, one colorless to cast that spell. <laughs> Phil, EW's coming up. I am currently in my build trying to dodge initiative altogether. Tell me how anybody beats this, beats that archetype. So here's the thing about the initiative mechanic. It's bullshit. <laughs> all right cool just, thank you, you we'll, we'll see you later we'll see you later thanks for watching just, just to be frank this is not a mechanic that was ever designed for one-on-one play the fact that you can produce a creature often on turn one that essentially gives you an emblem that is very hard to interact 
with that continues to give you value over the course of a game means that a control deck can't just answer that card cleanly with Swords to Plowshares, Lightning Bolt, Fatal Push, or another equivalent removal spell, which is breaking play patterns of legacy that we had seen for, you know, 10 years prior to that. So answering an an initiative creature with a removal spell isn't good enough. You need to follow that up with something that can take the initiative. So a play pattern that is scary is... You play an initiative creature, your opponent swords to plowshares it, and then drops like an orcish bowmaster that will get in and take the initiative. If you leave the initiative player with the initiative, even after answering the initial Caves of Chaos Adventurer, they still just accumulate so much value over time. Every step of the Undercity is probably worth 0.75 of a card. Like, it is very close to draw a card every turn that you are advancing through the Undercity. Lava Axe, 0.75 of a card. I, You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> well, it's more that some of the rooms along the way are very low in value. Like, if you ever have to go to Arena that it that tends to be a relatively low value room uh getting a treasure token unless you're struggling mana wise tends to be a low value room but you know getting your five damage getting your four one and karanos forbid you actually make it to the end of the dungeon and you get to you know rip through the top of your library for your best creature like it's gross i think something that also uh is often missed before people actually sit down and play the initiative matchup that if you don't have board presence already then one one initiative trigger represents two rooms because you have to go through summoning sickness before you can actually get there. So unless you have something with haste or you had a flash threat at the end of the turn, one single initiative creature not only replaced itself off the the land, but then it represents the second room and then potentially fighting over from there, the third and fourth room. So imagine if your ETB on the trigger was not only find a land, but also whatever choice of the second room is. Way more potent. Like the threat of the advancing of the initiative is really where I feel like the power level is because there's a lot of choices to be made too in the the Undercity where it's like, I could get domed for seven here if they just choose to put two counters and then the follow-up lava axe or they get to sculpt their draw and how do you navigate which one do i hold up this removal spell hoping that they put the two counters but then if they scry like i should probably just do it now do i want them to scry rather than go for two counters so that they can't trap me the following turn so i'll source them now so they don't have a target for the two plus one plus one counters there is some play to uh combating the initiative and all of it is bad the thing that's punishing is the initiative mechanic in particular punishes you for doing the most legacy thing possible that is casting a brainstorm or ponder if you're if if i play an initiative creature on turn one and you use your turn one to ponder to find a removal spell i am getting an absurd amount of value and damage off of my card if it's a caves of chaos adventure i get a free roll at casting another card off of my library if it's the the seasoned dungeoneer like maybe i get an extra land to hand or i alternatively get to bin a bad card if i don't like my next draw it is absurd the play patterns that you have against ponder the initiative creatures themselves are also value generating engines so even without the initiative that on the side is also accruing advantage each uh, initiative creature tacked on also has their own card advantage built in do you think the initiative which even i get that it was for four player not for one for one v one but when initiative similar to the monarch was intended to create engagement in combat and promote that kind of gameplay do you think that those mechanics successfully did that i don't think monarch largely did that i feel like the monarch 
play pattern in Legacy was very unhealthy when that mechanic was popular. There was a very long time where decks like Death and Taxes and even like Miracles to a lesser extent would just play a Palace Jailer and then warp their play pattern around holding that mechanic the entire game. So it wasn't actually incentivizing combat. It was, I'm going to build my deck in a way so that combat is irrelevant while I have my one-sided Howling Mine. As far as the initiative goes, I feel like it does properly incentivize combat, but the timeline you have to initially respond to the Undercity is very small. It needs to be, I can react to this in the next turn cycle. It's not like you're chipping through 40 life for three opponents. If you think about it, that's what, like, on a perfect you know two turn situation that's 10 damage that's like you know you got your three your three three your two two out you swing in you gave it plus two plus uh plus two plus two and then you're doing five off the off the dome so that's literally half your opponent's life total if they can't deal with it in two turns and since legacy is a format that already has some amount of incidental self damage with things like thought seas fetch lands force of wills uh street wraiths doomsdays an initiative creature sometimes is an even short clock than just that if your opponent opens up on like street wraith street wraith fetch Shockland, ponder your initiative creature might just kill them in one attack cycle like yeah. th- that is a thing that can happen and oftentimes because the initiative creature is a like four mana creature a, a fatal push doesn't actually get get it off the board unless you have a fetch land or something so it's not like these initiative creatures are all upside though let me tell you I have lost a good number of games to Dark Ritual, Thought Sees You, Reanimate Your Initiative Creature. (laughs) That is a real risk. So a lot of times these decks will play Leyline of the Void as their sideboard hate of choice, and that shuts off your opponent's graveyard. It does not shut off your graveyard. So here's an eternal weekend tip for you initiative players out there. In matchups where your opponent is playing reanimates, consider sideboarding out every single card that has the word initiative on it, because it is horrifying to have that card backfire on you oh the irony phil have you found that in your experience with that archetype which are the matchups that you're ideally hoping to play against i I mean we have some of the results from the seg pittsburgh 5k that was this past weekend which is the closest major event to eternal weekend north america which is also going to be in pittsburgh and initiative had i think i had a couple copies in the top 32 but now that we have a sense of like where the four color decks have sort of positioned themselves where grixis delver versus scam has sort of positioned itself it seems like that stuff is more or less settled I feel like the four color decks are the ones that have been most in flux recently. For the most part, I feel like we're sort of settled post Bowmaster release. What are the decks that you're happy to play against as initiative? And then what are the decks that you're not? And then specifically, what are the cards that people think is good in, against initiative but aren't? And then which ones are the cards that you actually fear when you sit down playing initiative? You're like, I hope I never run into this. I feel like... The raw power level of the initiative deck makes it so that most matchups that you sit down for, even if you are not favored, you are still playing reasonable games of Magic. And that is a good place to be. There are some specific cards that I'm real nervous about. One of the biggest ones there being Show and Tell. Show and Tell is a play that could happen on turn one that has the possibility of outpowering the initiative creature that I can put in off of that Show and Tell, especially if the opponent does like Show and Tell Omniscience Emrakul. So I am definitely a little bit sweaty about playing against Show and Tell specifically, but it's not like that is a super common deck in the format. 
format. The other thing that I'm really worried about is hyper fast combo. The initiative decks, generally speaking, are a little light on interaction versus a turn one combo attempt. Like maybe you will have some sideboard cards that can help you deal with that, you know, like a mind break trap, your leyline of the voids, something like that. But something that can realistically go under you or ignore what you are doing those are the things that i don't want to face so you know if i lose the matchup lottery and i get paired against you know oops all spells that is something that would make me very nervous because my archon of ameria that i might play on turn one or turn two might not actually be fast enough to get me to where i need to be as as far as cards that people think are good against the initiative but maybe aren't i think adding extra spot removal spells to your deck in hopes of shoring up your initiative matchup is not necessarily the right approach because single target removal spells don't save you from the god-awful Boros Fireball that is fourth Aerolingas that is the curve topper for this deck. And if you have to contest both the Monarch and the Initiative, your extra path to exile is not looking great in that circumstance. And you also ask for cards that are maybe better than people think. Every time I get hit by a stifle or a dress down, it is gut-wrenching. When I go all in on a turn one initiative play on the draw, and my opponent stifles that trigger and then lightning bolts my Caves of Chaos Adventurer, I ask myself what I'm doing with my life. Now, does that happen very often? No. Is Stifle a good card? No. But it is very scary when it happens. Yeah, Phil, right before that player stifled you, they were asking themselves what they were doing with their lives. So it was just a really, really quick role reversal. (laughs) You travel back in time to uh, medieval times and you're speaking you know will you even speak the language so if you brought initiative back to 2014 when rug delver was like the big deck you'd be in real trouble i don't know the mechanic's still just really <laughs> dumb especially if you let me play around with white plume adventurer again oh. yeah, i suppose that's true is fourth aerolingus that that card's just a stock four of right generally speaking yes there's a little bit of innovation going on in the archetype right now long story short the, the current debate is how much do you lean into Cavern of Souls? Because Cavern of Souls in this Boros mana base that also contains like Ancient Tombs and City of Traders is awkward because it does not cast some spells such as Fable of the Mirror Breaker that are otherwise glue that hold together your deck list. So there's kind of some experimentation going on right now. Like what happens if we drop Fable of the Mirror Breaker and play some additional humans such as Boromir that can be cast off the Cavern of Souls mana. How does that go and change the the deck? Where's your stance on it? I have not generally looked at Boromir and gone, this is a legacy card, but it is... It is putting up some 5-0s currently. I think that's one of those I abstain until I try it. Every time I look at a Boromir, I go, I'm glad my opponent is playing that card instead of something better. But it does often mess with what you're doing. Like the negation of free spells is very real. Will you be attending EW? Um, Unfortunately, no. The the reality of being a content creator and doing a lot of travel out of town is that you kind of have to pick your battles and you can only go out of town so many times 
while maintaining relationships and work-life balance and all of that. So I was in Atlanta for a CEDH 5K over the weekend. I'll be in Atlanta again in February. I'll be in Chicago in February for the Magic Con. I'll be sponsored to go there. And given the holidays coming up, I was just like, I've got to, I've got to let one thing go. And I, I picked Eternal Weekend. Yeah, that's smart. Especially if you're going all over the place, you know, picking your battles, so to speak, is, is probably not a terrible idea. Oh, it doesn't feel good, no. but it's it's it the can, correct right? play. <laughs> Eternal Dirtles is proud to be sponsored by Moxfield. Moxfield is the best Magic the Gathering deck building website on the internet. You can create, share, and find decks from Commander to Legacy and even fan-supported formats like Pre-Modern and Old School. You can see all of our decks on our Moxfield. Follow the links below to stay tuned. Assuming we lived in the timeline where you chose a different event not to go to and we're going to EW, what's the list you would sleeve up and what is the primary top deck that you think is enemy number one? Given my play habits, I, I would be sleeving up Boros Initiative. I am an Ancient Tomb gamer, an Aethervile gamer when I can, and the Boros Initiative deck is probably within about the top three decks in the in the format in my estimation. I think, and it's a little hard to say, but I think Blue Black Scam is public enemy number one. I think that deck is highly efficient, has powerful openers, and I think it's good at beating the bullshit decks that people will bring to the event when you can lead on grief reanimate grief with counter spell backup that is a lot of insurance versus literally whatever deck your opponent is playing you still have that cantrip core you have a lot of flexibility you have good lines i think if i were a blue gamer i would i would be very seriously testing that deck for the event where do you rank power level of uh, as an agent tomb gamer where do you currently rank the souped up new variant of goblins with sticker gabo in terms of power level on that deck's good draws it feels damn near unbeatable but on that deck's bad draws and especially if people understand that removing the sticker goblin in response to its etb trigger can stop that mana generation the the bad draws you're not playing magic like you are not doing anything like your sticker goblin gets countered you have a bunch of stuff stuck in your hand you've pseudo time walked yourself uh and and it is rough so that deck is scary if someone runs hot and top eights with it i would not be surprised but i would not be willing to commit my own tournament results to that deck especially since you telegraph what you're on before the game starts by presenting a sticker deck unless you know you're using your mental energy to fake people out with a sticker deck i actually think uh we'll we'll have to double check the comments will also keep us honest here but i think if you present a sticker deck without actual actual any way of using stickers in your 75, uh, that is representative of slow play and you can get uh, uh, warned for it or you can get penalties for it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I, I'm not totally sure but I there, there was one event early on when they first came out where a judge had issued a warning for slow play from a player who presented a sticker deck but didn't have any way to use them they presented a sticker deck and then we're just on Grixis Delver so but add to, one sticker to, th- to your sideboard everybody and be to, that to, guy to, yeah to throw somebody <laughs> off in there you know the same way that you can play companion or whatever that isn't that may, may or may not be part of your plan throw off some opening hand evaluation uh, they were doing that because yeah the way that you keep a hand against Grixis Delver you may not against sticker goblins so be wary out there if you if you are sleeping up goblins for any of the other ancient tomb gamers out there are there any ancient tomb decks that you would steer clear of in the current format i am not the biggest fan of the mono black ancient tomb decks right now i feel like there was a short period of time where that felt like a reasonable legacy strategy and i feel like those have 
fallen a little bit. It's not like the combo has gotten innately worse, but I feel like the rest of the decks have gotten better. Going into EW, we have a lot of eyes on the format. A lot of these lists are getting polished up. The control decks kind of know where they're supposed to be directing their energy. Up the Beanstalk is an incredibly good engine. And I think if you can be like, the mono black gamer who is making griefs, I think that's better than the mono black gamer who is trying to be casting helms. You think that's because of the metagame as it stands as a whole that it just gets picked apart or that it people just eventually figured out how to actually play against that deck after it won that first event? when the siege came out so the deck split into two decks with one version trying to play griefs reanimates douthy void walkers other aggressive creatures and that deck doesn't really want the ancient tombs because those ancient tombs aren't very good at the black black pips and then that just fully fully split and i think became a better deck and i think relying on like beseech and helm hasn't felt as strong to me like if i if i want to be a beseech deck i i think i'd rather be the gaia's will deck because that deck is much more explosive and especially with rug delver picking up in popularity where the questing druid is a card that doesn't get shut down by leyline of the void and scales incredibly quickly i think without a bunch of prison elements to keep those at bay i I just don't like how it feels when you discovered that you enjoyed prison style staxi decks where did that originate from what was it that like what is the experience because that's something that i have whenever i've tried those decks it's never spoken to me but i'm curious as somebody who's at the you know, forefront of of those kinds of archetypes. Where did you discover you're like, oh, this is the kind of gameplay that I enjoy? Like, what does that interaction in the moment feel like? Who hurt you is what we want to know. (laughs) Uh, I think I put myself through it, honestly. I think this one's on me. So my my primary starting legacy deck was death and taxes and i i I played it for years and for some period of time i was one of like the 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 best minds when it came to dnt or whatever i was dishing out all sorts of advice writing articles and stuff and as i i won tournaments and you know top aided a bunch of stuff and got store credit i started acquiring other decks and the red prison slash moon stompy deck was one of the first things that i gravitated towards and when i got magic online and i finally got access to that deck in a digital client, I realized like how quickly I could grind leagues with that deck. Mm. Uh, it sounds sort of like an oxymoron, but like as long as you know what you're doing playing that deck, Ancient Tomb, Chalice of the Void, Blood Moon, Shell can be very good at obliterating opponents. And I, I spent a lot of time grinding leagues and just really enjoying that, tracking data with it, just kind of like watching myself grow as I learned to better evaluate hands and mulligan better. And I enjoyed solving the puzzle of how do I sequence this hand a lot, and that's why I ended up playing so many of those decks. I think a lot of people, when they first look at the Ancient Doom decks, they go like, haha, Blood Moon goes burr, and they think there's not a lot to it, but the decisions are actually surprisingly tough and very close to each other, and I've grown to love that. Uh, pivoting off of the you know Red White Initiative talk, if you were to give somebody, uh, let's say you're, uh, t- to quote Brian, Koval, if you're a guy in Pittsburgh that owns old cards, what advice would you give to somebody that is taking their first steps into uh, Eternal Weekend? This is their first time going to a big event, but they own the cards. They want they want to play. What, what do you think the best advice you could muster would be? I'd give them two pieces of advice. Number one, sit your ass down and write yourself a sideboard guide because you don't know your deck as well as you think you do. Take the top 10 or so decks in Legacy, list them out, figure out how you're going to side 
sideboard. Look at those in-out numbers. Make sure you're actually sideboarding the cards that are in your sideboard, and if you're not, adjust that sideboard. Now, the reason you do this is twofold. It helps you get a better conceptual understanding of your matchup, and it saves you mental energy on tournament day. Because while you might be ready to go round one, round two, round three, you know, this Eternal Weekend is probably going to be like an 11 round event split over multiple days when you haven't eaten and like you are dying and you're a little dehydrated and you really have to pee. Having that mental shortcut there for you might be exactly what you need. So you, you know, remember to bring in Leyline of the Void in your relevant matchup or whatever. And I'd say bit of advice number two is treat every round as a learning opportunity, whether or not you win or lose. Because if you're going to get back into magic after sitting on the sidelines for a long time, the best thing that you can possibly do is ask questions. You see some wild card from your opponent after the mask match. Why is that card in your deck? And then go, oh, it covers this, this, and this matchups, and I just needed a slot that did exactly that. Or if you don't understand why your opponent brought in a sideboard card, they might go, well, I was anticipating on you having Graft Digger's Cage, so I bought in this, brought in this Abrade, even though you're not you know, playing that many creatures that it could remove. Asking those questions will lead to a lot of self-leveling up moments. Awesome. The level of knowledge that you have for the game and the and the strategy that you kind of provide is is just kind of breathtaking. It's wild to, to get an idea of like the, the looking inward part of, of the game and seeing how that works. Before we sign off on that note, I want to ask Phil, if you remember what your most recent kind of level up moment for you was in the way that like you help your your students or your or your your coaches as you call them. How about I give you two? I'll give you a level up moment right. that I had and I'll, I'll give you one from one of my uh my people that I coach. So I was uh I was playing in a, a CEDH event. My opponent, one of my three opponents, was doing some dumb stuff. They they played a, a removal spell. It was some sort of like artifact or enchantment removal spell. They they played it on a card that just literally had no real impact on the game. And I let them do it because it was a bad play. That was a player losing a resource and I just shut up and I didn't say anything and turn later we lost to an underworld breach that that card could have answered and so in my mind I went this opponent is making a mistake and throwing away a resource this is a two for one that is no it's a two for zero in my favor because it's destroying like some mana rock of my opponent and getting a card out of my opponent's hand when in reality I should should have said hey you're wasting a resource you should save that in case this next player has breach or another relevant card that was a level up moment for me where I was not used to a three player format and I didn't do a good enough job of managing my opponent's multiple resources in my favor. As far as people I coach, one that I remember is I, I was coaching someone. We were playing a Magic Online game together and they, they kept their hand. We walked through why the hand was a keep and they just like immediately played their island, played their ponder, looked at it and then they said, which card do I keep? And I responded with, why did you cast ponder? And they just like looked at me, blinked and just said, what? And I was like, well, you don't know what matchup you're playing. Your hand has counter magic. Your hand has removal. Your hand has lands. Like, what are you looking for off this ponder? And and he just like stopped, didn't say anything, picked up a pen, 
wrote that down and he said, okay, so what should I keep off the ponder now that I've cast it? I think there's a lot of moments like that where a player learns that not taking action can sometimes be better than taking action, despite the fact that like an internal mental heuristic that we often have is that spending your mana every turn is a thing that you want to do. Island Ponder, go. Rolls off the tongue so nicely. As a, a fairly recent new Ponder player myself, the way that I think about a similar situation like that is the lack of action isn't you you not doing something. You are still choo- you are choosing not to take action, which you know is a choice, but it is the choice to not take the action because you know why you're not doing the action. Reframing it as if I'm doing something versus not doing something, it's like, no, you're still doing something. You're just assuming that the non-action is the correct thing to do. That that framing was really helpful for me when I was learning how to like be a little bit more patient with my cantrips. Yeah, and it's it's really weird now because that lesson isn't always right because Orcish Bowmasters exists as a turn to play now. So like play versus draw, whether or not like casting something like that is correct actually becomes really interesting and it's like a risk versus reward threat assessment sort of thing. Ponder's already complicated as hell and Bowmasters being in 40% or so of decks complicates it further. One last thing, a little, a little bit off of the range now that you, you've brought up play draw. Do you think that the play draw right now is as reasonable as it can be given the advantage that the play has? Or if there were to be something to help alleviate being on the draw, th- what do you think would be a fruitful thing to try out? So if you asked me five years ago, do I think this rule is fine? My answer would have been yes. I think we've had a lot of power creep um, from maybe modern horizon and on that has made that gulf between play and draw so massive with like grief reanimate grief being a great example of that where you can keep a reasonable seven with two relevant cards from the matchup and both can be gone before you take a turn i am not a play design person but i would absolutely be willing to entertain the person on the draw starts with a a land in play the person on the draw, draw starts with a treasure token or something like that the biggest concern I have with any sort of rule change of that nature is some decks will be better at abusing that than others. Uh, with the London Mulligan being a great example of that, everyone knew going into that that combo decks such as Black Red Reanimator would benefit a lot from getting that many looks at cards like Entomb that aren't super replaceable. Here's one one approach that I'm gonna I'm gonna throw, and I, I want to get first thoughts. We're Rorschaching right, right now. If you win the die roll and you're on the play, you have to abide by the Vancouver Mulligan. Where the player on the draw gets to abide by the London Mulligan. Your thoughts? Magic players are not great at recording things. Oh, okay, good. (laughs) There you go. I would be very worried about a play draw mulligan where someone like is chatting casually as they get going and they're like, shit, was I on the player or the draw? Like, which one were you? And then mulliganing wrong. I think a good mulligan rule, a good starting procedure rule is very, very consistent. And I don't know that that would check that box. Can you explain your rule to the 10-year-old in 30 seconds? If no, it's probably a bad rule. This is why if if you're like me and have all these wacky, zany ideas and you need the grounded educated, well-spoken player to coach you, Phil Gallagher's your guy. And we'll have all Phil's links down below. So uh, yeah, definitely check out check out Thraven U. And uh, yeah, thanks for watching everybody. And, uh, and we'll catch you next time. Phil, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Cheers, folks. Good luck at Eternal Weekend.
play.